Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Lori Clark Show. This episode of my podcast is brought to you with the help of ZoomUs, a video and audio conferencing interface. It's important to know that I'm in no way sponsored by Zoom. I just want to tell you how much I love it. It is very reliable, easy to use, and provides excellent audio and video files that my team and I produce to share the power of story with you. Another non-sponsored, couldn't do without, but just have to tell you how good it is, is Squarespace. When they say it is the all-in-one platform, it really is true. I go into the back end of my website multiple times a day, adjust things, post podcast, add links, and look at our show's analytics, which all sync across my devices. And when I need an image, Squarespace provides an excellent resource that's powered by Unsplash. Now for my most favorite feature, the Squarespace app. Um, Being a working mom, there never seems to be enough time in my day. So when my daughter's in ballet, I sit in my car and upload, post, and manage everything on my website from the app. It's really cool and seamless. Squarespace is really, really simple and very dedicated to helping me create a brand of excellence. So with that, big shout out to Zoom, Squarespace, and Unsplash. Thank you for helping me tell people's stories. With that said, let's move on to the best part about today, the show. Please allow me to welcome my next guest on The Lori Clark Show. I am here today with Joe Beckwith. We are having a conversation today about religious trauma. Domestic violence, sexual assault, and PTSD are all things that Joe is familiar with and she cares deeply about. She educates, creates conversations, and talks about the aftermath of trauma. Joe started her YouTube channel called Trauma Talk. Um, she has some experiences in these areas and felt it was important for her to create a space where people could talk all about this. And today, we get the privilege to do that with Joe. There is a trigger warning here. We are not going to go into graphic detail. We're covering subjects of sexual assault and abusive relationships. We'll start with purity culture. We're going to talk about sexual assault. We're going to talk about where faith fits into all of this and how a lot of conservative faith asks us to just keep smiling through the pain and the suffering. We are going to talk about this because we must. This is hard. It's honest. It's messy. But it's real. May I? Welcome, Joe Beckwith. Hello, Joe. Hello. Thank you for having me on. This is awesome. Uh, I'm so happy that you're here. Thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Yeah, of course. This is a really important conversation. I I sure think so. It's something that's impacted my life on such a profound way, and I'm finding out more and more people um, feel the same way. Mm -hmm. So can you just walk us through sort of your religious background? and? and kind of the conversation around it. Yeah, so I was uh, born and raised into a pretty conservative Christian family. I do want to say right off the bat that especially when I'm talking about purity culture, my parents weren't super involved in that. Most of my like upbringing in the church was in youth groups or at conferences or Bible studies or women's groups. And so that's where I got oh, the majority of what I saw about, you know, my, myself and my gender and my sexuality and my worth and my value and my purpose. Um, so I, I grew up in, you know, Sunday school classrooms and uh, youth groups and Awana, if anyone's 
uh, been a part of that here in the U.S. anyways, and really really ascribed to everything that I learned. Like I was in my mind, not like at the time, but looking back, I was like, I was kind of like the picture perfect, like good little Christian girl, right? Up until the time that I was 20, I went to a Christian college for the first year of my college, all throughout high school. I was like the one who was starting Bible studies at my charter school, or, you know, I was just, I was so my, my faith was who I was. I don't think I could ever stress that enough that like every waking moment of my day was about God and that relationship and and being pure and being the right kind of person, being the right kind of woman. And then when I was 20, I was sexually assaulted by someone who was a leader in the church. And uh, that's true something that will make you stop and, and question things. And so things, a lot of what I thought about my faith, about my community, about my value, my purpose was kind of brought into question because the way that I saw the world, the way that I saw how I interacted with and communicate with God, like this relationship that we had, everything was sort of brought into question because I realized I don't live in a safe picture perfect world where everyone has the best of intentions, which is kind of what I always believed. And I had to start asking really, really hard questions. Um, and I would say the past nine years have, have been a process of asking those hard questions and uh, figuring out really who I am for the first time and what healing and recovery look like. And a big part of growing up in the church, especially from like 12, 13 um, to maybe 18, there was such a heavy focus on what they called, you know, purity, being pure. Specifically, that was talking about like, don't have sex. I mean, that was like the main message, but, but underneath that main message, there was so much more. There was layers of uh, how you should dress, how you're inviting, you're inviting the attention of men. If you're, you know, if your shirt is too low, but everyone's definition of that varies, uh, which yeah, okay, exactly. <laughs> I'm wearing a low shirt. <laughs> oh, scandalous. I like it. <laughs> yeah, it's lovely. I love the color too, by the way. But <laughs> yeah. And, and so there was, there was so much shame that was baked into sexuality and gender. And it was sort of always preached that when you get married, your sexuality is going to turn on like a light switch. But before that, you can't think anything sexual. You can't do anything sexual. Like, how dare you be a sexual being? But as soon as you're married, you're like this vibrant, amazing sexual creature. And I got married when I was 24. Oh, it took me a second to remember. Yes, 24. And uh, to an amazing man. He's, he's incredible and patient and just... I love our relationship, but trying to unravel what I felt about sex and sexuality and why it wasn't like a light switch where there was no shame anymore in all of this has taken a long time to figure out and identify like, oh, maybe being told that, that sex is shameful and bad and equated to you losing your value and your worth for the first uh, two decades of your life, maybe that does have an impact on, on how I see sex and sexuality. <laughs> what in, in conservative Christian church the idea is that the most important thing, the most special gift that you could give your partner is the gift yes. of you and your purity of thought, of, of, of sexuality, of yeah. your pureness. Anything other is, 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 is not a gift. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's a burden. It's baggage. It's, it's yeah, whatever. It's, it's, yeah, well, and I would think you and I, we both have the same upbringing. Yeah. Um, so I would say that that would have been damaged goods would have been the word. Oh God. Yeah. That, that label was slapped on a lot of things. We are going to go around in these conversations. It's never going to be quite linear, but you mentioned something about sex and sexuality once you got married. And so yeah. we have to bring people to the point where they understand that it's an abstinence message. 
the, yes. the message is there's no sex. And a lot of churches, now were, when you were going, were you holding hands or kissing? Yes. So I was, and I feel like the definition of, I had a, a like a, a boyfriend all throughout high school. Same okay. guy. He was also super, super into the church and Christianity okay. and religion. But I was always constantly questioning, like, is this too far? Is hugging wrong? Okay. That's probably right. fine. Is holding hands? Okay. That's probably fine. But what about making out? Ooh, I feel dirty now, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, but for some in the conservative Christian, they're not even holding hands. Yes. Like some of my like, friends who, who believe yeah, that. Yeah. Like the, the kissing, there's no kissing. Their first no. kiss kisses on uh, the wedding day. But this leads you and I to this point of conversation to say, okay, so for, for this expectation of, you know, you're spotless, you're clean, you're pure, and then you do nothing. You don't do anything. You keep your clothes on. Dave and, Dave and I had a motto, keep your clothes on. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> that was just the whole point was just keep the clothes on and you'll be good. And you're all right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, because we weren't as conservative. We were more liberal, I would say. Yeah. We were, we were able to make out and kiss and stuff like that. Uh, that yeah. was within the parameters. But again, it was that conscious checking in and the shame of the checking in. Did yeah. it go too far? Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. So like you, you move, you move yourself down this line where you're constantly evaluating your relationship with God and your action. Yeah. That's a really good way of putting it. And it's all so irreparable, even though there's redemption and forgiveness offered, it's still, it feels irreparable. Like if you did go too far and that shame doesn't just disappear. Well, and then let's tie it up. Let's go, okay, but if we did go too far and then we needed to have a conversation with our spiritual mentor. Yes. And then it was discussed, then would we be able to be in leadership? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for, for sure. That's huge. Because <laughs> you might not be a, a good, pure woman anymore. <laughs> well, right. And again, this conversation isn't to... Um, you know, diminish the, the different aspects of, of how people view God and, and no. different groups um, and different uh, cultures. It is to say, though, that when you have a relationship with a deity or a being that is so powerful, that is the reason why you are here. You yeah. know, you were knitting your mother's womb. There's this miracle upon miracle when you look out at the stars and the earth and the trees and the animals and you go, wow, that something made that. Then you compare yourself to that big thing that made that. Yeah. And you have this allegiance that goes beyond and it moves to shame. Yes. So quickly. Oh, that's a really good way of putting that. That's very, very, very true. Because when you draw that comparison, you're going to fall miserably, miserably short. But which is especially why we the way. all tried, right? Yeah. This is why oh, yeah. we spent our life doing fire, getting up at six in the morning and taking our courses and praying yeah. before, before church and before school. Yeah. Because we were dedicated to the presence of God and bringing in the power of that love into our lives. Because I do believe it's transformative. Yeah. I absolutely do. But unfortunately... Sometimes in the church, there is a way of taking the beauty of that relationship and adding a little toxic tone to it yeah. that really 
uh, short circuit how people live their life. So let's move us to when you get married. So yeah. here you go. One hour before the wedding, you're, you can't have sex. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next hour after the wedding, you're married. You're good. Yeah. Everything is unlocked. It's like you've reached, you've reached the final level. You're there. (laughs) It's Mecca. It's Mecca. Yes. (laughs) Oh, and I think that's, this is always an interesting conversation for me because I know some people who like followed, followed, I'm putting this in quotes, like all the rules, did all the right things, you know, barely touched each other before they were married. And then wedding night was like fantastic and everything's great happily ever after. However, that is not the story for the vast majority of people I've spoken to or myself. I think so yeah, so so I got married when I was 24. I um I felt really comfortable with my husband, like physically, sexually, spiritually, which was a big deal having gone through the trauma that I went through. Like we did a lot of work on communication and talking through things and it, it, it I felt really good being with him, but it was always accompanied by shame and like discomfort and I shouldn't really enjoy this. I shouldn't initiate or I should initiate more or just this I just felt a lot of darkness around sex or intimacy or, or anything like that. And I always attributed, like I said, I always attributed it back to, well, I've had bad experiences with this in the past, which is absolutely a part of it. But that deep, that deep seated message of um, sex equals your bad does not disappear the second you get married, at least for most people. It didn't for me. And it was something that I, it took me a long time to figure out where it was coming from because I'm like, I'm, I'm free to do whatever we are both on board to do in this relationship, right? Like there's no, like, as long as we're both cool with it, whatever we want to do is okay. But I still felt so like, so restricted and so shut down and like, I couldn't actually be present and I couldn't actually enjoy things sometimes. And it's taken years to sort of unravel that. And it's not like I didn't, it's not like I didn't love being with him. I did. It was just so complicated, especially in the aftermath, like what my head was going through, what my like shame cycle was going through, trying to feel okay with it. I I like what you just said there because I can resonate with you. For women in particular, there is this path that is so entrenched about the perfection and and Mm -hmm. being that person that's responsible. If you are not dressed right, you are causing people to stumble. Yes. When you move to a marriage and you're like, okay, I got to undo all of however many years for you, it was 24. For me, it was 20, yeah. 20 years of conditioning. Yeah. And I just turn that off and here I am and it's all good. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> and then add that to our list, Joe, you and I were both sexual assault survivors. Yeah. Oh yeah. Seriously. I think one of like where my mind first goes with that is when I was, I mean, the person who sexually assaulted me, I was kind of in a relationship with. Like I said, he was a, he was a leader in the church. It was a very complicated, very abusive relationship that went on for just about a year. And it didn't just happen once, it happened a number of different times and yeah. in different ways. But I remember like the, the first time that that happened, just this feeling of, because um, I, I legitimately bought into this idea that the greatest gift I could possibly give my future husband was my virginity on my wedding night. And that wasn't just something that like I was told and I was like, okay, sure. That was something I like believed to my core. Yeah. That, and, and I was excited for told other people that too. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You internalized it, that you were actually oh, yeah. the message. 
Yeah, a hundred percent. And when that was suddenly gone, I feel like I went through an identity crisis for a very long time of like, that was what I had to offer someone. And that's such a sad thought thinking back, right? Because I think, I think I'm a great person. I think I have, like, I like myself. I think there are a lot of really cool things about me. I I always want to like grow and learn. And I want to listen to people who are different. Like there's so much that I have to offer that I really thought all I had was this, like the V card. That was like the thing that mattered. And so (laughs) like, like really we put so much emphasis on that and looking, looking back, it just breaks my heart because Anyone going through anything traumatic, especially when it comes to any kind of sexual abuse or sexual assault, there is so much that's tied up in that. There's so much that that can do to your brain. It's a lot to work through. It's very obviously traumatic and difficult. But when you additionally add on this layer of, and now you don't have what you're supposed to have to offer the person you're supposed to be with that God has destined you to be with, uh, which is what I was taught, um, it's, it's especially crushing. It's hard to want to keep any boundaries or ever, you know, be around anyone. It was just, it, and I feel like that was sort of knit into, I'm even kind of thinking about now, knit into this idea of even getting married, that like, I don't have what I need to have. And so I'm coming to the table sort of with this, even if it's small in the background, this sense of like, I'm sorry, even though my husband has never cared about that, <laughs> you know? But and it's interesting that you say that because I remember um, I was talking to somebody the other day and, and, and she was talking about her life. She yeah. a Christian, like in her mid twenties, Yeah, she had had a couple partners and it was like, and she was told, well, you know, God will restore your virginity to, to this relationship. And yeah. And she was like, Kate, yeah, what? <laughs> Like, like it almost was an offense to her Mm. because it's not, her love for this man that she's been with for years was the purest love that she had. Yeah, exactly. So it wasn't like she needed to have a restoration of her virginity. She said, you know, in fact, I, I was young. I didn't, I was drunk. Like there was no, like, it wasn't like I just, you know, uh, I had this idea of what love was or a different idea of love or my love. Um, I loved somebody with all my heart and soul and then we broke up. And it was not really that. It was just exploration, freedom, and joy. My teenage years, I came to know God in my life. And there was a shame about living this life that I didn't think and still don't think there's anything wrong with. Oh, that's so interesting. It's like uh, retroactive shame, like assigning, assigning these labels. Yeah. That's actually really good. I've never heard that. I'll just I'll coin that term right now. Coin it. That's a great term, retroactive shame. Can we talk about holding these things in our hands? We have to go, our view, our belief in God is here. Yeah. And then our and let's talk about in this hand our reality of our life and our actions are here. Yes. We as women in the faith and as men in the faith have to adjust these things. Constantly. And it is a constant battle and something loses and it can never be gone. Mm. Oh, that's a really good way of putting it. And also, I think that that's such the way that it was taught to so many of us, such a ridiculously unreachable standard 
of perfection, like whatever category you're looking in, that you're always failing. At least I always felt like I was failing, even though I did all, I did all the right things. Like I did, you know, but but I was still, I was still just broken, dirty, bad. And not in the like, uh, redemption as a beautiful thing, the redemption as a, I'm like a dirty creature crawling on the ground because I suck so much and maybe you'll take me in. Like that was the mindset that was sort of promoted and taught. And that's so heartbreaking considering what spirituality can really be and what connection with God can really be. Well, and, and not only that, but that was reinforced to you in the time. But then let's talk about the purity um, conferences. Let's talk about... Oh, God. <laughs> right? Yeah. So we, we both know, like, I was there, I was in the room when a lifesaver was passed around. Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> it was this lifesaver, you know, if, if everybody licked it, would and then would you lick it at the end like it was oh, like yeah. this dirty this is you if yeah. you give yourself to people yeah it's this, this dirty is, sticky icky thing that no one really um, wants and no one <laughs> wants to even hold it no you can talk about like the flower where yeah. the, the, you know the rose or or whatever is passed around and I mean of course it gets passed around so all the petals fall off yeah and it's all mangled and not the way that it was intended to be. And who wants this? This is yeah. you. Yeah. And, and then you talk about the paper, the paper where you, it sticks together and then you pull it apart and, and the pieces of the paper stick. Yes. And if I just want to interject something with yeah. that, I think that the idea of whoever you are with sexually in any way always has like a piece of your soul or you're always carrying them with you. How freaking damaging is that in general? But also I think specifically when you're talking about sexual assault and sexual abuse, the idea that you are permanently uh, stuck to, like in the, the paper sense, like that paper analogy, you're permanently stuck. Like they have pieces of you and you have pieces of them. And that's how it's always going to be. That's so freaking heavy. And, and, in my mind, not remotely the way that it works, right? And it's just, yeah, those analogies are, are, I think so many of them were explained to us in maybe good faith. Like, I don't think most of the people promoting this purity culture message intended to cause deep levels of lasting shame or damage to kids. I think they were trying to help and protect. No, but I- like those those smiling messages about, you know, the lifesaver, you, you wouldn't want this if three people had licked it or, or if the whole classroom had, um, that stays with you. And I don't know about you, but I, I was taught this concept of like soul ties. Um, that like, if you were, have, have you heard of that? Oh yes. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's basically this idea that your, your souls will forever be bound together eternally if you are sexually intimate with someone. Uh, and again, I just, I think I'm going off topic here, um, but, but but it's, it's so what interesting. It's, about. it's called off yeah, topic. It's yeah. like, it's <laughs> <Perfect>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so there was like this insane level of reverence and like sexuality is this incredible, like it's an incredible thing, but and the but was always like the next hour of the lesson. Like sexuality, like sex is great, but there's this whole, you know, message about like how powerful it is and how it's you know irresistible and how damaging it can be and, and all this stuff. Like it was built up as this massive, basically, at least in, in my circle, like the point like the point of life before you were married, right? You know, was to keep this and then it was to give it away once you're married. But then on the flip side, I also heard so many conversations, which was kind of confusing at the time of being like, well, you owe, you owe your husband sex. 
Like this is your duty as a wife. And so it was this weird juxtaposition of before you're married, it's the thing that you guys both want and you're desperate for it and you, you have to save it. And then after you're married, it's like, there's this weird, like understanding that I was passed down that like, no one actually likes sex, especially women. You just have to do it. You have to suck it up and do it. And it's so weird because those messages are not remotely aligned. They are polar opposite. And yet they were taught in the same circle. <laughs> well, and our, and our body is made for joy. Yeah. We are made for joy. We, we, joy heals us. It brings us together. It, it, it's a galvanizing um, message. It can be transferred just in a smile and in, in, in yeah. the beauty of life, joy and happiness. And I think these kinds of conversations, they suppress the joy. Yeah. And take it away from what is supposed to be a beautiful exploration. You know, yeah. if it was taught, and here's the thing, there is no sex ed. There's no, there no, is not. Oh my gosh, no, yeah. There's no discussion about how this affects you. It's yeah. don't do it. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> and, and, and that is the damaging part. That is... All of these things are so damaging in terms yeah. of how you see yourself in the eyes of God. Yeah. And when you have let down the maker of the universe, yeah. how do you reconcile that? In some denominations and in some um, conservative faith, if you actually divorce, then you're done. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> like, it's a very interesting idea around, and it doesn't matter when you divorce. So, no, or for what reason? <laughs> right. Uh, like, for instance, if you're a woman who was divorced, you kind of, you have the choice of either uh, you can do the best you can now after the sin of divorce and you can never get married again. You're choosing between things you shouldn't have to choose between. There is this idea that you are less than. And I think that's the whole point yeah. of this conversation. We are yeah. not less than. You are worthy. No. You are worthy. You are worthy. Yeah, exactly. And I, I wish that that was something that was taught to more of us growing up and, and there being a period on that sentence. Yeah. Instead of, you know, you're, you're worthy. God thinks you're worthy. But here's the things that you really need to do and watch out for. Because like it was, it, was, it was said, but it was said as such like a half truth. It was like, yeah, you're worthy, but always, there's always a but in there and there isn't a but like you are worthy just the way that you are. And, and that's enough. But, uh, I still, I'm still wrestling with that and reconciling that because again, for the first two decades of my life, it wasn't enough. <laughs> when you say that you reconcile those things, what do you mean? Like, can you let us into how you reconcile that? Like you're going for a Saturday morning coffee, you're walking down the road. You're like, man, huh? What is it that makes you you know, begin to try to grapple and sort. Yeah. I think for me, one of the biggest steps was, is stopping and recognizing where something is coming from. Like, is this something that was taught to me by people who I don't know what their intentions were, who taught it from, I don't know, you know, who learned it from, I don't know who, like, where is this belief about myself coming from? Um, It may feel heavy and oppressive and I may feel like a a worm and a horrible human being as I'm walking to the coffee shop. So let me pause for a moment and acknowledge that those feelings are very real. I'm not like trying to stuff them down anymore because I did that for a long time. Um, Letting myself like feel what I need to feel, but then also exploring what is at the root of this? Is it, is it because I believe if I am not perfectly pleasant to every single person I meet, that I am not a worthwhile woman because 
good women smile all the time and pop out babies and uh, are perfectly pure sexually until they're married and then are like, you know, crazy sexual beasts after that. Like, where is this, like, where is this belief coming from? And being able to kind of track that down gives me clues at least to, to, to look to, to, to find healing for that or to shift it a little bit or to figure out, do I, do I actually believe that anymore? Is it just a programmed belief that's sitting there and is telling me icky things about myself? And most of the time when it comes to shame, it's like, it's a programmed belief that's just sitting there telling me icky things. It's not actually something I agree with anymore. It's never something I tell someone else because I don't resonate with that, but my, my body and my brain and those connections are still there. Yeah. Yeah. See, and the problem is like when you have this upbringing and when this, you know, takes place, you, you lose your ability to communicate. Oh yeah. You lose your ability to articulate. Oh, it strips you of identity. I think really like while trying to give you identity, it strips it away. But okay. So then let's talk about that because that's this again. Yes, exactly. Identity, you belong, but you don't have freedom of thought. Yeah. Yeah. And oh gosh, it's, I'm trying to think of like a, a specific example of that, but it, and I feel, I feel almost bad looking back on my like early teenage years sometimes because I was able to fall pretty easily into all of the assigned roles that I had for me. Like I, w- I was, I was, um, I was a huge people pleaser and just naturally kind of friendly anyways. And so like I checked all the boxes of, you know, the, the, the sexual purity thing throughout my, you know, teenage years and um, being just exceptionally kind and generous and just all of these things and always thinking about God, always thinking about other people and never myself. And I think that's one of, that's where like the identity stripping comes Don't think about yourself. No, 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 that's bad. (laughs) No, you, you don't get to choose yourself. No, you can never, you can choose everyone. You can choose God first and everybody else, but you do not, even though you're told you matter constantly, nothing about what you actually desire or want or choose or think or hope for really actually matters. It's, it's, I think it's a, a very dark way to twist things for young people. But, and again, this is, this is a basic teaching, but it's, it can be toxic if it's not yeah. thorough. So exactly. we're not, these teachings are, look, belonging and, and self-discipline and abstinence and these kinds of things. And, you know, um, understanding there's a higher, uh, there's something out there that's bigger than you. Yes. These are beautiful concepts. But yeah, they give me goosebumps still because they're, 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 I think, a lot of what it means to be human. It is. And these are beautiful things. But, but again, sometimes you have to ask yourself, like, how do I even enjoy life? Oh, yeah. That's a, that's a question I don't think I've asked myself until like the past three years. <laughs> like, really? Yeah. Like it just, it wasn't important. Like it wasn't important. You know? <laughs> because you didn't come first. Choosing yourself exactly. was actually not something that you do because God chose you. Yes. So in this purity culture, in our faith culture, we talk about this deep, deep love, but beliefs about self-love are ridiculously complex. Yes. Because everyone's context is so different. What happens behind closed doors is very different what happens in other 
homes. It is. And it's so different for every single person, like you're saying. And, and the messages, I, I think it took me a long time to realize that the message someone was getting from a sermon or from whatever could, could be equally as valid as what I was receiving, but very, very different. And I, I remember going to one, <laughs> I remember going, it was probably the last conference I, I ever went to, because I, I remember it pretty well. It wasn't, you know, two decades ago anyways. And I, this was a women's conference for mothers and their daughters, um, all different ages. And the idea of self-worth or self-love was actively belittled and shamed because you don't have any worth in and of yourself. That all comes from God. So these messages that the world is trying to teach you that, um, that you have value or that you can love yourself, those, those are from the devil. Those are toxic messages. I remember hearing that and I was old enough at that point that I was like, I don't know how well, I don't know how I feel about this. I don't know how I feel about leaders in my church telling me uh, pretty directly, no, you don't have value. You don't have worth outside of this extremely specific mold. And I was taught, you know, for the most part, I was in um, pretty safe, pretty great, you know, youth groups and, and groups and stuff like that growing up. And I was taught how to love other people and how to do that well and how to be self-sacrificing and always put others first because these are all beautiful concepts, but they lack a mess. Like if they don't also have take care of yourself, love yourself, get to know yourself, like extend that same love towards the being that is you, that you are freely giving out to other people. It's, it's not the full picture. And, um, and it was lacking, I think in this purity culture. Well, uh, the simple commandment is treat others the way you want to be treated. Yeah. And so, well, how does that play there? Yeah. When you don't know, when you don't treat yourself well, or you don't know to, or you don't have any context for that. Right. So then, so then there's more, I would say for me, and this is only from my experience, I would not say this is, you know, but this is, would be my answer. Then I judged. Yeah. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Because I, I was looking over the fence and I was like, oh, well, you're unsaved. Yeah. You know, and there's this motive right? There's that motive where you have to go, okay, well, uh, everybody is, if you're not on this boat, then yep. you're not on this boat. And Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> but that, but, but we wouldn't, I, I realize now in hindsight, like, honestly, I, I think, wow, D- Dave and I sit down sometimes we just go, oh, I, I can't believe we did that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right. I, I have those moments too. It is really not how we see the world. I, I think it's a, it's a brave and it's a hard process to go through to realize that like, oh, ouch, I did something that was, that was really harmful there. And I, did, I may not have meant it or I may not have thought I meant it, but like I, I did that. And I, I think back to specifically when I was in college, like my first year of college, when I was at that Christian school, it was before like any of the trauma that I went through. And I was so sure in what I believed in this like, just this comfortable, beautiful way. Like I was still always striving to be better and like do more and think better and have a better connection with God. But I was like, I was really confident in what I believed. I knew it was right. Like I knew all these things. There was a lot of um, lovingly judging other people. I say that uh, sarcastically because yeah. I don't think you can really lovingly be very judgmental, but um, like I knew I was right. And, and I knew other people who were outside of the fold were, were wrong and I wanted to help them. And sometimes I think back on that mindset this will sound horrible for just a moment, but I, I hopefully redeem it. But I miss it. I miss that black and white way of looking at the world because it was so much more comfortable. It was so much easier to just think I'm right. They're wrong. Like I have the path. I have the map. I know exactly everything about my life and probably about their lives too. 
And I, I would never, ever want to go back there in a million years. But it is, it is so, it is so just, it's a comfortable way of living. Like black and white, I'm in the right, you're in the wrong, and everything's good, you know, moving forward. But, but, well, it's, but it's... Well, if, because all the colors in between are what you use to process. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so you just kind of skip that step. <laughs> You're like, oh, skip, 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 (laughs) skip until you get to wherever you want to be. And I I think then we have to talk about, you know, in that, in, in what you're saying lies different genders. Yeah. Different sexual orientation. Oh yeah, exactly. All of that. And and then we're saying, no, you're not, you're not seen. (laughs) Those are the moments that haunt me. Those are hard moments for me Yeah, where, you know, I'm like, wow, who do I think I am Yeah, to, Seriously. you know, to pass the judgment on the girl who is having sex because yeah. you know, I tell her she's unclean. Yeah. <gasps> like, oh my God. I, I can think back on one. No, exactly. Uh, there, there was one situation which a very, very good friend of mine, um, and this was like during college years too. Uh, and she had gone through a lot of trauma as a kid, like especially like with sexual abuse and stuff like that. Like sex was a complicated subject for her. And she told me that she'd slept with like her longtime boyfriend. They had a great relationship. And what I wish, God, if I could go back, what I wish my reaction would have been was to like make sure that she felt okay with that and ask her how she was feeling. And like, if this was a great experience for her, be excited with her because this was a really big deal for so many reasons. But my response was like a very cold, dead, like, well, if that's the choice you made, okay. Like if that's who you want to be, okay. You know, and that like, ah, that's heartbreaking to think back. And I've apologized to her many times. (laughs) It's all about the internalization of this and how come it didn't last for you, Joe? Oh, how come the, uh, the, all those messages that were stuck in there didn't last? Yeah. How come it didn't last for me? Yeah. Like, why are you and I so different? Yeah. That's a question I ask myself a lot because I'm like, <laughs> there are so many points in this road where things could have taken a very, very, very different turn. Yeah. I think it's those almost subconscious choices that are made throughout this whole process. I, you know, I think about that a lot. <laughs> like, no, I think we were taught to care about things and value things very, very highly and deeply that had very little to do with what Jesus's message actually was, which was funny because the whole point of all these groups was to honor Jesus and honor God. And yet we place such high value on things he either never mentioned or mentioned in passing. Like, you know, he in, in the gospels, Jesus talks about like, sexual sexual purity maybe once or twice he never talks about homosexuality at all like we have no record of jesus talking about that and yet those things were like the topics those were the things that mattered um and it just one of the reasons that i'm so like i I, i'm not actively involved in in quotes the church anymore like i don't go to a church building or anything like that but i i still care so much about those communities. And I, I'm still, I feel like I'm like adjacent to part of them because I know what I was taught. I know so much about what they believe and why they believe it. And there's so much that's unintentional. There's so much unintentional harm that's caused. I think all of these messages of like shame and purpose and value and worth that were, that there were like these toxic elements of, um, 
it just, it doesn't have to be that way because I believe most people who were teaching these things were generally well-intentioned. And that's one of the reasons I feel so passionate about talking about this stuff, because it's not like I'm not pointing fingers at anyone else and saying you're bad. I'm saying, I think we just got it wrong. I don't want other people to hurt because of that. (laughs) Um, You know, the suffering with a smile. (laughs) I'm a pro at that. (laughs) I was too. Oh yeah. (laughs) I think for a lot of women, we we ex, we excel in this. Like I'm an A plus student in this. Oh yeah, and I have I have tailored that. I have worked hard at that. <laughs> I do think that this extends beyond just like purity culture, the church. I do think that there are a lot of messages in general, specifically towards women about suffering with a smile, but they are uh, they are a lot heavier within some church cultures. You're right, but they are. But I think suffering with a smile has a, a way of pushing down the emotion. Oh, 100%. Because you're not in connection with the emotion. So, you know, um, anger or um, sadness or, I mean, all the different emotions that we experience, that is not something, like, like you can say it, but you better turn the corner really quickly. Oh, hundred percent. Exactly. You can, you can acknowledge it as you're still smiling. You know, I'm, I'm really, this really makes me angry, but I know that it's going to be okay. Like that's all you get. Yeah, <laughs> like, <it's okay. laughs> yeah exactly. I, I agree with you. I think the purpose is uh, it's a lot less uncomfortable if someone's just happy and smiling all the time when dealing with difficult things, it's uncomfortable for everybody. And uh, the, the burden often falls on the person who is in pain or who is suffering to sort of calm everybody else down by being easy to deal with and smiling and going through it, you know, as a positive person and, and all of that. So you pretend and nothing bothers you and then you don't bring it up and then you don't talk about it. It's very effective. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wish I could do that in my life, but that's unfortunately not how it works around here. <laughs> no, I, um, just a quick story on that, if yeah. you don't mind. Yes. I, that has been one of the largest things for me because since I was 13, I, I, at 13, I had a really bad horseback riding accident, broke my ankle, had to have surgery, didn't work, had to have surgery again, you know, a year later, had to have my ankle fused. It was this constant, I spent most of my teenage years on crutches, in and out of surgeries, procedures that, that honestly went up through my 20s until 27. I had to make the decision to amputate my leg because this was not working anymore. Like There were no good options. And so from the time that I was a kid onward, um, I, I was suffering or in pain or whatever you want to call it. And I was praised again. I, I don't blame any of these people, but I was, I was praised for like not being bitter. The second it happened, like not being bitter, not being resentful and look at you choosing life and look at you still smiling. And I, I took on that role so well. I was so good at, uh, going through hard things and being fantastically upbeat and positive. And it, I, I just didn't feel anything. I just didn't feel anything for a decade and a half. And it it took up until very recently to start looking at that and thinking like, I am so dead inside. I'm so dead inside because I have no idea how to feel angry. I have no idea to actually feel sad and not feel bad for being, for feeling sad. And so probably 25, 25 to 27, I was in counseling for, for a number of different things. Counseling is fantastic. I'm a big Uh fan of it. And uh, I recognize this pattern in me of always, conforming to other people, making them more comfortable, suffering with a smile, all of that, and what it was doing to me and how much it was repressing me and what I felt. And so when I knew I was going to go through this major thing of losing my leg, like that's 
physically very painful. It's emotionally really difficult. Socially, it's bizarre to adjust to. Like I knew it was going to be a big deal. And so legitimately the reason why I started uh, the channel that I have, one of the channels I have is called Footless Joe, was to have a way for me to go through this and, and keep checking in with myself and like not pretend because right. I knew that that's what I was going to do. And yeah. I didn't want to have to deal with the repercussions of that in another 10 years. I wanted to deal with it as I was going through it. And so I really tried to commit to this is what this journey honestly looks like. And if I'm going to turn on a camera, I'm not going to lie to other people. I might be really good at lying to myself, um, but I'm, but I'm, I'm done with that. I want to be done with that. And so one of the biggest reasons I started doing any of this was to keep myself honest in, uh, in having a hard time for it to be okay to have a hard time. And uh, it has been effective in kind of helping me. I'm still on that. I'm still on that journey. I don't think I'll ever uh, yeah. reach the finish line, but, um, but, but yeah, I, that was a bit of a tangent, but um, it's not a tangent because, that. because it's, it's an important and it's formational in yeah. all of the things that we've just been discussing. Because yeah. this is really, did someone ever say to you, well, this must be God's plan. Oh, all the time, all the time. Yeah. So then if it's God's plan, why would you not smile? Yeah, you better go through it with joy, gosh darn it. <laughs> right. Otherwise, you're ungrateful. Yeah. <laughs> All those fun messages. <laughs> oh, that was good. Yes, you're right. And so, so it's like this, 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 I mean, I can only imagine how the wave of emotion that you must have felt and the yeah. fear and all of those things and not being, were you not able to actually share those things or was it just like, yeah. It, it, I think honestly it was more, I didn't have any tools to do that. Even if I wanted to, I didn't have tools to put things into words or name what I was feeling and not immediately redirect it to, but it's okay. You know, naming what you're feeling. So you weren't able to identify I'm raging. Yeah. And, and if I, if I got anything close to that, there was uh, some kind of in quotes, positive message to slap on it. Um, It just, it wasn't, it was so like the whole message of like suffering with a smile was so well ingrained into me from the time I was 13 that I did not have any other way of processing or existing up until the time that I was like 25 and really starting to look at this, that like I have shut down everything and that has led to feeling deeply disconnected from everyone and everything because I have not felt genuine emotion in like 25 years of my life. And it's still like still very much in, in the process of figuring out those tools and like, okay, anger is not a moral failing. Anger is a human emotion. Um, you know, don't hurt people when you're angry, but it's okay to express it. Things like that. Um, but that's just, yeah, it takes a long time to unravel, but I think it's so vital to try because you deserve to be human. You deserve to feel things and not feel ashamed for it, I believe. So do you feel the emotion now and what do you do and how do you connect that into your soul now? Yeah. Uh, I think I'm honestly just, I, I think when I went through that amputation two years ago is really when I started processing a lot of the things that I had, had 
previously just repressed. And so I suddenly started feeling a lot of grief because now I had a word for that. Now I understood yeah. what that was like. And I'm like, oh, that's what that is. Um, and, and began to sort of experiment in feeling those things. And, and what does that feel like? And what does that look like for me? And what helps me? Or what am I doing to just shut it down? And, and is there something else I can do that maybe just allows it to exist for a few minutes first before I shut it down, you know, as a, as a starting point? Um, like even grief for your childhood. Oh, yeah. Oh, very much so. <laughs> because if you, you must have been on medication. Mm-hmm. I, I was on pain medications for like heavy, heavy pain medications from the time I was 13 to 28. Yeah. Wow. Just huge chunks of my life that, and all the surgeries and, and recovering and all of that, just so much that I missed out on that I, I was, I really, like, I sincerely was always like, it's fine. Like, it's totally fine. Like it happened. It's whatever. And years after being like, wow, that actually was really, that's painful. Like, I wish I, I had that experience. I wish I could have put on uh, uh, heels to go to my prom instead of these ugly ballet flats were the only thing I could find because my ankle was in so much pain. Um, I, I couldn't have it at that angle. Like just those stupid little things and the bigger things being like, there was a lot of, of loss that I experienced that I always just sort of shoved, like shrugged off. Like, yeah, people go through stuff, whatever. Um, but I went through those things. But you and, probably weren't running as much as you wanted or, or mm-hmm. you know, uh, dancing or that kind no. of either. Yeah, anything like that, I, I paid dearly for it with a lot of physical pain after. Right. I still wanted to right. do things, but right. wanted to have that normalcy, but yet there was no normalcy, and then there was still no normalcy in how you were handling it emotionally. Exactly. And then all of these reinforcements from faith when you're chronically ill. Well, then let's pray for you. And yes. and then there's these ideas that maybe you're not praying hard enough. Oh, maybe. I could talk for days about that one. <laughs> You have a hidden resentment and hidden issues in your life that are unconfessed sin. Above. Yeah, unconfessed <laughs> sin that needs to be brought out. I mean, there's there's so much of that, and I think it's, uh, yeah, it's just it's very it's very heartbreaking to me because again, I think those things came from good places, but I did get pretty involved with a group of people who were very into. Uh, faith can accomplish anything, which on the surface, okay, decent idea. But when you apply that to a 15 year old who is facing another surgery, that's going to alter the course of her life because you're fusing bones together. And you're saying, if you have enough faith, you don't have to have this happen. If you have enough faith, your ankle is going to fix itself. What that's actually telling me is I don't have faith and I failed and my pain is my fault. Um, there's just this cascade of, of effects that those messages have. I feel like I was taught that it, that it wasn't, I was taught in words that like God's love for me was not conditional, but everything else that I was taught fed into this idea of there, there actually are conditions like God's still going to love you, but what that, you know, what he actually thinks about you is probably going to change, you know? And yeah. I just, when I think about, I think one of the things that really started me thinking about faith and, and God differently is like when I think about how I yearn to know other people and to love them and be loved and have that connection. Like when I think about as a human um, who is not a God, uh, when I think about how deep and passionate that is for me and how it's not dependent on all these other things, even if I'm aware of them, like it's, there's something deeper there 
that I don't think that I would have something that God didn't. You know, that, that I think is it like I don't think I would I would have this deep desire for connection regardless um, of uh, of all these conditions if. Like, do I really have something that's better than God? I don't, I don't think so. If, if there's a God, I certainly don't think that I, I have it more figured out. So I, I imagine that has to come from somewhere. Right. It's, it's got to come from somewhere. Yeah. But then when you're looking at it in, in relationship to relationship, like yeah. you're holding it together and in your situation, you've had a major life catastrophe. Yeah. 13, going along. What were you doing? You were, were you jumping on the horse? Like, were you jumping on the horse? No, actually. Um, so quick, I'll make this into a 30 second story. When I moved to Colorado, which is where I live now, the day we were moving into our new house, we like drove by this big, open, beautiful field that like was at the foot of the mountains. And I remember thinking at 10, like my ultimate goal in life is to gallop a horse across this meadow. And then eventually I got involved with a barn and the first time I ever took a horse, uh, like outside of the arena, was in that field. So literally, my 13-year-old dream come true, and that's and that's when I had the horseback riding accident because I was right, I was riding on an ex racehorse. And when you take a you know a racehorse out of a, a a circle basically and let them just run, they're gonna run. And I was not uh, nearly a good enough rider for that. <laughs> right, and you fell off. Yes, I fell off. Yeah, the, the horse kind of tripped. She was fine. I was not. <laughs> no, you weren't. And, and so then, so then that's where it all kind of shifted. And yes, the, because there's these ideas of God as a parent and authority yeah. figure and all of those things. And so as you're forming in your life, as you're becoming, you know, 14, 15, 16, how you see God is now more parental. And, yeah. and then there's this, you're missing something. You have yeah. to work harder, Joe, in order to get healing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that is quite a burden to put on but, a 14-year-old. But that's this hand. But then the yeah. other hand is it must have been God's plan. Though. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. So what? <laughs> it's confusing. It is deeply confusing. And this is where the religious trauma comes in. This is yeah. where trauma can really, really, really impact a person's life. And words matter. Um, I'm going to tell you the story. Uh, our school, we signed contracts in order to be, you smile. <laughs> <laughs> I know where this is going. I'm like, oh, goodness. <laughs> oh, you know where this is going, do you, Joe? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> yeah. So the contract was, you know, like, I'm not going to, my name is Lori. I'm not going to smoke, drink, do drugs. Yeah. I'm not going to have sex before marriage. I'm going to abide by the six inch rule. Uh, yeah. You know, just some of these, like these little contracts that you signed. Um, right. So anyway, uh, we had a, uh, after our chapel, we had uh, a meeting and they had the senior uh, group come into the meeting and they called it and they brought in two people, a guy and a girl who had, it was found out that they had had sex in front of their, their class, their school, their grade 10 to grade 12. This is... Um, for me, I wasn't on, I wasn't on that side. I was on the side of going, Oh my gosh. Yeah. I don't know what to do with this. This is horrifying. This shame. Yeah. Is what we are talking about right now. Yeah. Because I think when I actually started 
thinking about this more deeply, I, I think I told you, but I had three different people who recommended that I read this one book called Pure by Linda K. Klein all on the same day. And people don't recommend that I read books that often. Yeah, uh, right. So I was like, okay, um, if I believe in fate, this is fate, I need to read it. So I picked it up. And it was uh, the first book I'd ever heard discussing sort of the ramifications and the 10 years later, uh, emerging from purity culture and women who are happily married or who were actually gay and had never said it or just sort of their, their accounts and their stories. And I read that and was just it opened up so much for me that I was like, oh my God, this is what I'm, cur- I'm currently dealing with shame about who I am wow. as a human because of so much of this. And then I started talking to some friends of mine and it was, it was this weird sort of like shift where a number of people were all like, yeah, I just started thinking about that you know, like last week or a month ago. And isn't that weird? And just realizing that it is such far reaching consequences on a lot more people than I thought it did. And when I started talking about it more on my channel, Trauma Talk, where I run this Facebook group called Dismantling Purity Culture. And I thought I'd be talking to like five people, right? And like, it's well over a thousand. Like this is something that has affected a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds yes. um, with lasting consequences. And, and it, I, think it's, I think it's dynamite that we discuss it and we talk about it and we bring you know, light to it so that maybe someone else can recognize that in themselves and get to a place where they don't you know, hate themselves. Did you ever feel abandonment from the community? Oh, certainly. <laughs> certainly. Uh, certainly. Um, oh, so this is with I, your assault or was this with your leg? No, with my leg, people, here's, here's what I have learned that I am hoping to be a part of changing over time. People are a lot more comfortable if you are physically, uh, in quotes, broken or hurting or dealing with, if they can yeah. see something that's going on, yeah. uh, if it's physical, they are much more willing to be there, um, to be a part of it, to sure. listen, to bring you stuff, to sure. be fine if you're not 100% fine two weeks after something has happened. But when it comes to emotional things or, or trauma that isn't directly on your body, like just physical, it is a very uncomfortable subject for people and something that not a lot of people have been educated in how to deal with. And so for me, growing up, I had a really incredible community in a variety of different ways, like from my family, from my family's close friends of supporting me, supporting my family as I was going through all these surgeries growing up as a kid. Um, But, and I I don't think I ever really appreciated that feeling of community and like the community and knowing in a church or in a college campus, knowing that we all believe basically the same things, right? Like there was, there was comfort and joy in that. However, uh, when I was sexually assaulted and then started really questioning things and being like, hold on, I don't think that this is necessarily right. And I was never a person to like, like cause a huge fuss or anything like that, but just even rocking the boat, uh, even realizing that I now, like I was trying to deal with something that was so had such a huge impact on my identity, was so traumatizing for so many reasons, like changed how I, the the view I had of the world. I didn't know what faith meant anymore. And most of the people who surrounded me in the church that I was a part of, um, many of them I've I've reconciled with, we've had good conversations, but they, they did not know how to deal with that. They did not know how to deal with someone who was not okay or who couldn't pretend to be okay. And the answers that I got from that community were, um, were damaging enough that I, I withdrew from it because I'm like, this isn't whatever it is. 
this isn't it. And I think there were a lot of things that went into that of like, I now, now I'm questioning some of the things that held this together. And so I do feel like an otherness. I do feel detached from them. But I think the biggest thing for me and something that just lights me on fire that I'm like, I don't want this to have to continue to happen is that people just sort of drifting and being uncomfortable or saying things that are really, really harmful unintentionally, because I don't know what to do with someone who is deeply hurting or really struggling with mental health or experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder or, or anything like that um, from a lack of education, not, not from a lack of trying to help, but just from a, this is too much. I don't know what to do with you, you know? And so, so that's really where I felt um, it took me a long time to find a community again after that. And that was one of the most heartbreaking pieces of everything for me was like losing community is so, so powerful. Like that, that connection is, is so powerful and trying to find something like that again, um, has taken a long time. You know, I, I found it, but it's, it's, yeah, it was, it was a huge loss. And, um, and I think that the church can do better than that. <laughs> <laughs> I think it can. And, yeah. you know, self-care goes into that though, because yeah. into the community and say, look, this terrible thing happened to me. Yeah. You don't know how to advocate for yourself. No. Oh gosh. That's so true. Isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And there, and yeah, I sort of see it as like a, like a, a both kind of thing because I'm like, I didn't have the words to explain what was going on because my brain was traumatized and it's really hard to form, you know, like coherent thoughts or like, here's, here's my rational explanation of things. But, um, but, but yeah, when, when you're in that state, it's, it's hard and I don't blame people nearly as much as I used to. I used to be so mad at people who didn't get it or who, you know, weren't there or whatever. But looking back, I'm like, I don't even think I told them a quarter of what I was going through or what I needed because I didn't know how to, because I'd never been told how to say, I need help. I'm really hurting. This is, you know, this is what I need. Or can you sit with me or anything like that? Because it was always just about other people. But it goes back to what we just discussed about that smile. So how did you deal then with yeah body disconnection. Oh yeah. And how do you deal now? Yeah, I I think it, uh, what I experienced definitely made my body an even more unsafe place, but I think I had kind of been taught for 20 years that my body was unsafe because it could like, it could cause other people to stumble and it was sinful and bad and wrong and like all of these things. And then this thing happens to me that just cements that message home. And also my body was this thing that was so very unsafe. So I had no interest in, in inhabiting it <laughs> really. So I was very, very disconnected um, from myself, from my skin, from my body for a really long time. And one of the things that was so fantastically helpful for me was mixed martial arts. Um, like fighting was Muay Thai and boxing and jujitsu and things like that. Because I think there are a lot of, because like I found a community there, which is amazing. It was a great place to maybe like experience some anger in a safe space. Um, But it also, it like, it let me, I was very connected to my body when I was, uh, you know, sparring. (laughs) Like I had to be, I had to be here. I had to, I had to reside within my own skin for those brief, periods of time. And that was incredibly helpful to me. Um, and so I found a lot of healing and a lot of connection with myself through doing things that really pushed me physically because you have to be here for it. Like I can't be, um, I can't be rolling with someone in jujitsu where they're trying to tap me out or, or choke me out and not be present because you're just going to lose. <laughs> you know? Right. right. 
<laughs> yeah. So that was definitely, that was definitely a first step in sort of, um, dabbling into it, but I definitely was, I've definitely been very disconnected from myself for a very long time. It's only been recently that I've started meditating because, uh, I always have stuff. I'd always have music on or movie on or a podcast. I was, there was noise around me constantly because I could not stand the idea of just being quiet with myself, being quiet, like in my body and actually being here. And it's really been within the last year that I've, that I've been able to do that and not panic, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> uh, and where did that panic? Cause you know, I, I know some of what you're talking about. And yeah. so where does that panic happen for you? I think it, it's, it's hard to pinpoint it, but it's like, a, I, I think it stemmed for a long time from my brain is not a safe place to be and neither is my body. So as long as I can keep it distracted, I don't have to fully feel what's going on. I don't have to sit in this skin that, that has hurt me, that is so unsafe. It sounds like it's just like one thing after another that has been um, sh- sort of shaping this new awakening for you around this yeah. connection to you and to what your body actually really needs. And I, I think I thought about this piece of it quite a lot that the way that I responded in the aftermath of the very abusive relationship and sexual assault and stuff like that, the way I responded to that was not in line with how I had responded to things for the last 20 years of my life up to that point. Like prior to that, um, even in like bad situations or things that, that honestly were abusive looking back with like other, other boyfriends or friends or whatever it was. Um, it was always very like, I forgive them. I understand. I'm going to take this on as like, you know, myself. And uh, even throughout, like throughout the course of the abuse relationship that I, that I was in that culminated in sexual assault more than once, it was always very like, well, I know he's a broken person. Like I'm going to forgive him. Just, just this whole mindset. It shifted, I think for me, and it, it really began, um, I really began questioning just the constant numb and the the shoving down of feelings and the always being about other people and never being for myself. I think my body honestly knew that I wasn't going to make it. Like I I was not going to make it if I kept doing that. If I kept putting things into little boxes and shoving it down and being about other people, like I I wasn't going to survive. And I'm really grateful for whatever piece of me knew that because that was not a piece of me that had existed for the first two decades of my life. I had a friend, uh, a really good friend of mine. We grew up together and she's the friend I I was referring to that went through a lot of abuse when she was younger. And when I told her this happened to me, um, she told me years after the fact that she was, she was terrified for me because she was like, I know what it takes to be like, at least for her, like I know what it takes to get through something like this. And I know Joe doesn't have that. And she said that and it wasn't like an insult, but it was honest. No, no, like, no. It, it I, was I honest know. because I didn't. <laughs> no, no. I know. I know what she's saying when she's yeah, yeah, yeah. Like she was, she was terrified for me because I had all of the tools that would lead me to self destruction. Um, and there was something that shifted that I, I think I just instinctually knew, like I'm not going to make it. So I need to start doing things differently. And I, I started doing things differently. And I will forever be eternally grateful for those instincts and for what pointed me in that direction. Oh man, this is so good. Thank you for this conversation. It's like so life giving. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) No, Joe, thank you. Like, uh, I think the biggest message 
for all of this is that um, we are worthy. Yeah. And we know it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That we must have this conversation. Whether you are, you have been, it was taken from you, your purity was taken from you, or you, you know, you didn't choose that, um, or you did choose that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Both sides of it. (laughs) You are made. And you're wonderful. And you're You're damn amazing. (laughs) Damn amazing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What do you want to leave people with, Joe? I think something that has helped me so much, especially recently, is a word that we've used a lot in this conversation of connection. I have been terrified of connection for so long because it's, it's a lot. There's a lot of emotion attached to it. It can be very scary. You know, you feel like you open yourself up for hurt, but as I've been experimenting around with connection and, um, you know, seeing who that fits with and what that fits with and what, even if it's a tiny little thing, what helps me feel a little bit more connected to myself, a little bit more like I'm actually here, those things are worth pursuing. And I found myself in very, as I'm sure most people, if not everyone listening has found themselves, found themselves in very, very dark places where nothing seems to matter. And I'm utterly disconnected from everyone around me, regardless of if they're loving and amazing or whatever. And the more that I've taken a step back and, and intentionally found ways to connect myself, to intentionally be in nature, because I feel more connected as a human being when I do that, intentionally spend time with friends um, who I feel safe with, even if I'm like, I, I'm a homebody, I like being at home. So like forcing, my, not forcing myself, but being like, no, go have those conversations. Like very consciously seeking these things that help me feel like I'm actually here and like life is worth sticking around for. Those things are worth doing. Like those things are worth doing for yourself. So if there is, and if you don't have any of those things, if there's nothing that helps you feel connected right now, I get it. I've been there, but that's where you get to explore and adventure and try new things in in little doses, you know, like not all at once, but just there are things out there. There are tools. And sometimes they take a little while to find and that can be painful, but it's worth it. It's worth it to search and to fight for it because because you're worth it and, and you absolutely belong here and you, you're worthy of having that. So fight for it. And I think that kind of brings back to that uh, profound sense of belonging that is, is out there. Um, I that. You know, <laughs> I love that. I love what you said with that. <laughs> well, they don't know what I said about that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right. So, um, so for you who are watching and listening, I was telling Joe at the beginning of the show when we were just kind of in the green room, I was saying about my, what I felt about spirituality because in my life, church has been, and Joe, you know, this church has been that whole, your whole thing is acts of service. You're, you're moving people in to acts of service and there's this transformational approach to um, organized religion that we all connect to. And so I, and it was always based in this word, spiritual, spiritual yes. development, spiritual growth, spiritual, spirituality. And, and so one day I was really, really struggling. I was sitting at home. Um, I think Dave was at church actually with all the kids oh, yeah. and, uh, and I wasn't, I was, I was at home and I, I was sitting and I was looking out over the water and there was um, com- conflict in the church. And I was trying to figure out where I landed on it. And so I opened up. I thought, you know what? I want to know what the definition of spirituality is. So I went to my bookshelf and I had a, de- a dictionary that was my mom's. It was like from 1960. <laughs> and I opened it up. 
And I looked up the definition of spirituality and it said a profound sense of belonging. Yeah. And I took the book and I just chucked it. <laughs> and all these, like this, all these pages fell out and I went, <laughs> that's it. I'm done. I get it. I get what this is. And yeah. if that means for me that I have a profound sense of belonging because I am spiritually connected to this source, yeah. aching it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who cares what anyone else has to say about it? Take it. Like. <laughs> Take it. We belong. Well, I don't even want to end this, but we have to because I think we've been going for like two hours. Oh my gosh. Oh, we have. Oh my Lord. <laughs> I, mean, I, did, I just, I could keep talking God. for another two hours of a work for my work schedule. <laughs> so I look at this. I went, Oh my gosh, it's been two hours. Um, Amazing. But, but for, for those of you who have to go and do other things other than listen to us, <laughs> yes. uh, thank you for, for all the things that you've just said. Thank you for engaging in this incredible conversation. Um, this matters and you matter and what you have given us in your authenticity has been, uh, it, I am just moved by you. Jen. <laughs> oh, thank I, am you by you. I am inspired by you. Your bravery is, is something that it just actually like gets me a little teary only because, um, this is so cool that you have made adversity into a beautiful gem. <laughs> and you've offered it to other people well, and thank I just you. want to say thank you you've changed my life yeah, thank you Lori goodness you're going to make me teary now too <laughs> oh well <laughs> I know right I'm good with that <laughs> have a good day and we will talk to you soon yes thank you <laughs>